Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Hey folks, I'm going to read from Mark 9, 2 to 13. The Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking to Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good for us to be here? Sorry, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say because they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. How many of you are familiar with, uh, with the uh, reality TV show called Undercover Boss? How many of you actually watch it? It's not a bad show. Anyways, for those of you who are not familiar, it features CEOs of uh, relatively big companies leaving the comforts of their offices and donning disguises so that they can work with their unsuspecting employees. Uh, the purpose of this... Uh, what would you call it, this project, uh, is for the CEO to learn about the company from its operations to what staff think about the company, how the company is functioning, and the welfare of the staff. And it's the last bit of the show that is the source of many uh, of the show's heartwarming moments when the CEOs reveal their identity to the still clueless staff in many cases. Some staff catch on, but a majority of the staff go, was that you I was working with? In the first portion of our passage this morning, we're gonna see something similar in the transfiguration of Jesus as the undercover boss of an unprecedented kind. That's the title of my message this morning with the subtitle being, The Suffering of the Saints, The Suffering of the saints after six days. Interestingly, if you haven't already noticed, dates and times are not that important to Mark. Hence, his introduction to events with the word immediately or and or then this happens. But in this instance, he begins with a chronological note after six days. Now, why did he do that? Firstly, he's linking the extraordinary event we just read, 
that's full of allusions to Old Testament passages and themes, to Peter's confession six days earlier in Mark chapter 8. It is a decisive stage in Mark's depiction of Jesus in which Mark asks the question of his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter, albeit with God's help, answers correctly that Jesus, you're the Christ, the Messiah of God. However, Jesus' immediate reply to him about his suffering and voluntary death so unravels Peter that he rebukes Jesus. Now, the word rebuke is the same word to describe what Jesus does to demons. In other words, Peter is condemning Jesus in the strongest possible way for speaking about his suffering and death. Now, why this reaction in Peter? That's because from the moment he was a kid, Peter had been told that when the Messiah comes, he would destroy God's enemies by the word of his mouth. The Messiah would free Jerusalem from the Romans, gather the faithful from in dispersion, and rule in justice and glory. This was the popular view of the Messiah in Jesus' days. So Jesus bursts their thought bubble by saying, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the King, and I will triumph, but not by taking power, but by losing it. Not by inflicting suffering on my enemy, but by suffering for my enemy. Not by wielding a sword, but by donning the servant's towel. Not by asserting my rights, but by relinquishing my rights, even the right to my own life for the ransom of many. That is how I'm going to defeat evil. That is how I'm going to restore God's righteous kingdom. And of course, this has implications for discipleship for all of us. For Jesus said in verse 34, chapter 8, whoever wants to be my disciple must therefore deny him themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And then Jesus went on to tell the disciples that while his suffering as the Messiah must occur and will be far greater than imagined, so will his resurrected glory be three days after his death on the cross. That's the backdrop to Jesus' transfiguration. If you like, at his transfiguration, Jesus removes his disguise temporarily as the suffering servant and lets Peter, James, and John catch a glimpse of his glory as God the Son. The reference to the dazzling white clothes is an allusion to the exalted and divine figure in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, who will be worshipped by all peoples and nations of every language. The transfiguration of Jesus essentially shows him in a form like God. This means that Jesus is not just the Messiah, an especially godly human chosen to rule in God's name. The Messiah himself is clothed in divine glory. The Messiah is actually divine. The second reason why Mark begins with the chronological note after six days is he wants us to see the connection between Jesus' transfiguration and the time when Moses spent six days up at Mount Sinai before God appeared to him. 
to him in Exodus 24, verses 15 to 16. The reference high mountain is an allusion to Mount Sinai. Hurtado writes, here the point of the allusion is to alert the reader that what is about to take place, the transfiguration of Jesus, is a manifestation of God, a theophany, like that mentioned in Exodus 24, verses 15 to 16, that a new revelation is here given that therefore surpasses the former one given to Moses. Furthermore, Moses, the founder of Judaism, the greatest of all the prophets in the Old Testament, prophesied that God would send a prophet after he was gone. And we find this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise you up or raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. This was understood by some ancient Jews and early Christians to mean that God would send a great prophet of Moses-like stature in the final period before the appearance of the kingdom of God. Early Christians believed that Moses' statement to be a prophetic promise of Jesus Therefore, Moses' appearance in the transfiguration meant that he was endorsing Jesus as the one he had promised. This is so you understand why Jesus makes the appearance. He's there to say to the disciples, this is the guy I was telling you about and prophesied about way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18. You must listen to him is an allusion to Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, except in Mark chapter 9 verse 7, it is God the Father who speaks, listen to him, which was preceded by the phrase, this is my son whom I love, the same words that God spoke over Jesus at his baptism back in Mark chapter 1. What are the disciples, exact, what are the disciples supposed to hear exactly? It is this, the son, the undercover boss of an unprecedented kind must suffer. So too must his disciples. That's what the father is saying. Listen to him. Listen to what he said back in Mark chapter 8. And this is the something that the disciples must grasp, even if it is a terribly inconvenient truth. Now, alongside Moses is Elijah, another great prophet of the Old Testament. Mark's readers and the disciples knew of the ancient Jewish expectation of an Elijah figure based on Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, which also makes reference to Moses. This Elijah figure would appear just before the end of the present world order to announce the coming of God's kingdom and the restoration of all things. Elijah's appearance, like Moses, is seen as his endorsement of Jesus as the Messiah. But he's supposed to come before the Messiah appears. So the disciples are a bit confused. Hence, they question Jesus in verse 11. Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Where, where is Elijah? He's supposed to make an appearance before you, but we haven't seen him make that appearance. Jesus tells them that the Elijah figure had already come, and he's none other than John the Baptist. Whereas Mark hints at this, Matthew, Matthew is more explicit. 
In Matthew chapter 17, verses 11 to 13, Jesus replied to the disciples, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, but they did not recognize him, but have done to, to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. In response to what he sees, Peter suggests a shelter to be constructed, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, respectively. We can only guess at Peter's intentions, but one thing is for sure. Mark tells us that Peter does not know what else to say because he's freaking out. Um, could you imagine knock-knock on your door and you open the door and Queen Elizabeth is there. You know, what are you going to say? <laughs> Should I curtsy? Shall I? Well, what do I do? That's what's happening here. Peter is so freaking out by what he's witnessing that he says, Oh, I'll build a shelter for you, for one of you. Is that cool? <laughs> cool. Uh, what a sight. As they, uh, as suddenly, Suddenly, as suddenly as Elijah and Moses appear, they vanish from sight. And as Jesus and the disciples make their way down from the mountain, he commands the three disciples to keep quiet about what they had just witnessed until after his resurrection. We're told that the disciples are in deep discussion in verse 10, not about the resurrection per se, as most Jews believed in it, but more specifically in relation to Jesus. If Jesus is to be resurrected, it means that he must die. And he's still unable to accept that their Messiah, their hero, must suffer and die before his entrance to glory. We too struggle with the notion of suffering, the suffering of the saints, the suffering of God's people, the suffering of good people. I know I do. And I'm thinking here of Floyd McClung, whom I've spoken to you about, a global missions leader, an author who's written 18 books, including the international bestseller, The Father Heart of God, which has sold an estimated 2 million copies in nearly 40 languages. A gifted speaker, he has lectured at over 100 colleges and university campuses. His life and work featured in many uh, publications, including Time Magazine and the New York Times. In more than 50 years in vocational ministry, he and his wife of 54 years, Sally, have worked on every continent except the Antarctica. In 2006, while in their 60s, when many are planning for retirement, Floyd and Sally relocated from the U.S. to Cape Town, South Africa, to pioneer disciple-making movements throughout Africa and beyond. He has mentored hundreds of young leaders and inspired countless of people, including me. In 2016, Floyd suddenly became ill without any warning. He ended up in intensive care in a matter of hours. He was diagnosed with a rare bacterial uh, infection that led to a septic shock and damage to his muscles, vital organs, 
and neural pathways. The thing is, he remained conscious, but he was incapacitated, hospitalized, bedridden, and unable to speak for the remaining five years of his life until he passed away on the 29th of May this year in Cape Town. Could you imagine that? He was 75. My response was, what? Why, God? What? And why, God? Because he had been suffering for so long, bedridden for so long, incapacitated for so long, I thought maybe God's plan was to heal him for the sake of the gospel. At the end, maybe the sixth year, seventh year, eighth year, I don't, didn't care how long it was. I'm sure he did. I thought at the end, he would be healed. God would raise him up and allow him to speak again for the sake of the gospel. And that will lead to hundreds and thousands of people being added to God's family. And furthermore, people from all around the world, thousands of people from all around the world praying for him. And I figured if he was healed, there'd be a point to his suffering. Makes sense? My plan makes sense. If I was God, that's what I'd do. Just wait, Floyd. You just got to wait. Suffer a little bit longer, and then I'm going to heal you. And that is how I'm going to display my glory to the world. And you'll get to tell them the good news of Jesus. Now you will see the purpose behind your suffering. Yes, I get that. That's the ending I had in mind. But when I found out that he passed away, I just felt, God, I feel like he... He suffered for five years for nothing. I don't know if that's what you're thinking. That's what I was thinking. Lord, his suffering seemed to be for nothing for five years. Sally, in her journals that she posts up regularly, would write of times, Floyd crying at the sight of friends and family visiting him. Other times, his tears were tears of frustration that he couldn't speak, that he couldn't move even though he was conscious. And that's not even the end of it. Sally herself had been battling cancer and was in remission, but toward the end of last year, I think, her cancer returned, and she had to be on treatment again. I just cannot imagine the untold suffering this couple and their families have been through in the past five years. Their suffering feels senseless and a terribly unfair reward for the exemplary and sacrificial years of service. That's how I feel. God, how can you honor this man like that? Is that his reward after years of service? Thousands of people that you would let him be bedridden for five years? If his destiny was to die in, in 2021, why not take him back in 2016? Right? Makes no sense to me. Why? Why, why, why? But you know what? You don't sense that in Sally's posts at all. 
And she would write every day. There's no self-pity in her postings, no resentment, no self-entitlement, no bitterness. I'm sure she struggled. I'm sure she struggled because if she didn't, she wouldn't be a human. But in her writings, you don't pick up resentment. You don't pick up bitterness. You pick up worship. You pick up, I don't know what, but you pick up something that's sweet. And this is what Sally wrote a week after Floyd's passing. Quote, Thank you for all the lovely messages and tributes from my dear husband. I so appreciate the love and honor you're extending to him. It comforts my heart. I'm slowly reading, savoring everything. At least two churches that I know, two churches that I know of, have taken the Sunday service to honor Floyd. That was very special. We had prayed for healing or heaven for Floyd, and God has chosen heaven. I trust his wisdom in that. After grieving for five years already, the grief is now final. It is a profound grief in my heart. The tears are flowing, but they're bringing healing. I take comfort in knowing he's no longer suffering. I don't know how he endured. Floyd's doctor told me that the hospital staff and mourning, they loved Floyd and considered him family. He said that Floyd inspired them, his courage. He called him a warrior. And all this while, Floyd could not speak a word. It had to be the presence of the Lord with him. Tributes and messages and the thousands are flowing in from far and wide, from countless of people impacted directly or indirectly through Floyd's life and ministry. He's sharing in the glory of his Lord and Savior, Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, 14 to 17, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. On the day Floyd became ill, he was speaking to a bunch of students and colleagues, all aspiring church planters, undergoing training through the ministry he founded in 1993 to see Jesus worship by all people, peoples of the earth, reaching the least, the last, and the lost. And what turned out to be a prophetic word, he asked them, this is on the day he became ill, if I can't continue, will you finish the race? 
that I can't continue till you finish the race. The notion that God loves us and therefore he will not let bad things happen to us is one that we struggle with. And yet we so quickly forget that is precisely what happened to Jesus. The only truly innocent sufferer. The only truly innocent sufferer. At the transfiguration in which Jesus' clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them, revealing his glory as God the Son, he knew with certainty that in a very short while he would suffer greatly, be despised, rejected, stripped naked, beaten, tortured beyond recognition, and nailed to the cross for our iniquities. Garland writes, it foreshadows the time when God will gloriously enthrone Jesus after the degradation on the cross. This white flesh of the splendor to come brightens the dark cloud of tribulation that presently hangs over Mark's first readers and confirms Jesus' promise that those who follow and suffer for him will not have done so in vain. Why would our suffering not be in vain? For the same reason Jesus' suffering was not in vain. Keller explains, Jesus lost all his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so we could get access. He was bound, nailed, so that we could be free. He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that, could only, that can really destroy you that has been cast away from God. He took that so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond. And the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into somebody gorgeous. Through Jesus, we learn that while suffering is overwhelming, real, and often unfair, it is also meaningful, not an interruption, according to the secular view. Quoting Keller again, there is purpose to our suffering. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and to more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. And I saw this clearly demonstrated in Sally's life. Therefore, the notion that it God, if God loves us and he wouldn't let th bad things happen to us is one that we must reject. God can love us and still let bad things happen to us because he is God, because he knows better than we do. Elizabeth Elliot, I think most of you are familiar with her, who spent two years as a missionary to the very tribe members who killed her husband in eastern Ecuador, put it beautifully in two sentences. God is God, and since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will, and that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. If you doubt this, if you doubt God is for you and cares for you, 
then your suffering will become unbearable. On the other hand, if you're certain that God is for you, not against you, that God is present to your suffering like he was when Jesus suffered, then you'll be able to say with God's peace that passes all understanding, blessed be your name, not only in the land that is plentiful where your streams of abundance flow, when the sun's shining all on me, when the world all, world's all as it should be, but blessed be your name still when we're in the desert place, when we walk through the wilderness, when we're on the road marked with suffering and when there's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. Psalms 34, verse 18, as I close. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Psalm 30, verse 5. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Psalms 147, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. All these scriptures are in your news bulletin, by the way. So for your application this week, I suggest the following things. Number one, make time sometime some this week and spend it with the Lord. And start by uh, singing the song that we're about to sing, but you can sing it during the week as well. Blessed Be Your Name by Matt Raymond. And then read the verses that I've just read either before or after the song. And then thirdly, make some time to, to pray for people that you know who are in pain and who are suffering. Yeah, you know who they are. Spend a moment praying for them this, during the week. Let me pray before Di comes back and lead us in our final song, Blessed Be Your Name. Let's pray. Lord, we love, I, I love when Elizabeth Elliot said that you are God. And since you're God, you will always be worthy of our worship and our service. And that we will find rest nowhere else but in your perfect will. And that your will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably, unspeakably beyond our largest notions of what you're up to. Grant us such faith, Lord, such trust in you when we struggle, either when we go through suffering or if we are experiencing suffering right now or we're struggling with the suffering of those that we care deeply about. Grant us grace to put our trust firmly in you. Father, just as you were there for Jesus' suffering, you are there for our suffering. You are there in the suffering of those that we love. You are there with them. You are there for them. And remind us 
that because we are believers, we are in Christ, suffering is never meaningless, is never an interruption, but has meaning. Meaning to which we may never discover until we see you face to face. But until we do, I pray that we will hang on to that. That we pray and speak to a Savior who has undergone suffering, therefore who knows perfectly what we're going through and what our loved ones are going through when they're suffering. Comfort us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.